0: Yeah, great to have everybody. Thank you for coming, and uh, we are going to start tonight. Let's have prayer, and we'll get into some information and material on the doctrine of Scripture, Bibliology. David, do you lead us, please? This is, uh, I guess, the granddaddy of all doctrines, because if you are wrong on the Bible you'll probably be wrong on a lot of other things. Uh, That usually is the case and has been the case historically with uh, the denominations and with the different groups that have been uh, tainted and influenced by wrong thinking about the Bible. Uh, the, The Bible The doctrine of the Bible is the foundation doctrine, really, in all of uh, uh, Christian history. Um, Let me uh, say a word about some of the material I am going to just present. uh, Hopefully, it will be somewhat organized, but it will be a hodgepodge of some things that I've just... uh, Done down through the years. Mostly it will be uh, some things that I have taught at Southern Bible Institute for a long time uh, 25 or 30 years. I didn't teach bibliology every single year, but uh, pretty much taught this course uh, eight or ten times uh, through the years. And so a lot of it will come from that. That, uh, what I have been teaching at Southern Bible, is a lot of what I picked up uh, in some uh, classrooms myself, mainly out at uh, Dallas Baptist with uh, a great professor, Bill Bell, and then at uh, seminary with a a few others. So there will be some seminary notes and some things from him and then of course the the classic books uh, this is probably the best book on the authority of scripture the inspiration and authority of the bible by B.B. B. Warfield uh, probably in our library it's uh, old it's been around a while it's still in print as far as I know and uh, super super book and then Biblical Revelation, the Foundation of Christian Theology, this is uh, Clark Pinnock. Notice how he, the foundation of Christian theology is what you believe about the Bible. And that's what he presents in this book. I know Clark Pinnock, if you're kind of keeping up with theologians and uh Uh, a lot of different big-name writers uh, down through the years. He, along with John Stott and a few others, have kind of crossed over into some more, what shall I say, uh, some different beliefs, I guess, than uh, most evangelical uh, theologians hold. I think Pennant, before he passed away, uh, pretty much denied the doctrine of hell that kind of in most conservative circles kind of people get out their pen and kind of mark through his name but uh, nevertheless uh, when he wrote this book uh, he wrote a great book and so that is uh, another book I want to mention in kind of keeping with the theme that the doctrine of Scripture is as important a one doctrine as there is among all the doctrines, the uh, famous uh, Louis Sperry Chafer's uh, Systematic Theology Set, and I think uh, I got this back when there were eight volumes, I think this has been now put into just two if I'm not mistaken, but uh, this is the first volume, and it's on the Bible. So he finally gets into the doctrine of the church and doctrine of uh, saving faith and doctrine of angels and doctrine of Christ, doctrine of last things. That's in volumes 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Volume 1 is about Scripture. So the uh, same is true with the uh, famous little uh, set called The Fundamentals. And uh, this is by Warfield and uh, Torrey, James Gray, uh, Bishop Ryle, G. Campbell Morgan, A.C. Dixon, the, the great, great theologians uh, back in this, this day and time. And this uh, came out in 1917, and it was issued by Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. The school's still going, going strong, I might add. And uh, there are several volumes here. This is volume one, and this volume happens to be on the trustworthiness of Scripture. Yeah, we'll touch on that. Yeah, that's exactly exactly right most of it, warfield and the people that wrote the fundamentals that's exactly where that came from it is uh, part of the a big controversy really and and really a a spiritual war that went on back over a hundred years ago really started in the late 1800s with uh, German rationalism coming over from Europe and kind of invading uh, the uh, American seminaries and universities and uh, we'll we'll get into a little more through the uh, weeks here on the history of uh, how the Bible has moved the thoughts about the Bible and Uh, the way people think about the Bible and uh, what this group thought and what this other group thought. We'll even call names. We'll uh, mention some seminaries that have been true, some seminaries that have moved left and uh, that kind of thing. But this is exactly right. Uh, This was part of the uh, fundamentalist, modernist controversy. By the way, a lot of people... Kind of cringe at the word fundamentalist uh, today. The news uh, uh, people and uh, some of the magazines and uh, Newsweek, some of these kinds of uh, periodicals. Uh, whenever the word fundamentalist is used, it's, uh, it's it's usually a David Koresh type, or it's a rattlesnake handler. Or uh, it's just some ignorant backwoods uh, person that uh, beats their kids about every 20 minutes, <laughs> and uh, just that kind of thing. If uh, I remember years ago, and I may be telling my age here, but uh, back in the 70s and 80s, when Lester Roloff was uh, making headlines, he was a Baylor graduate, uh, went to seminary, is a good preacher. Uh, He he had a lot of good churches on his side. Uh, The state of Texas passed a law that said all churches, all daycares, anybody that took care of children had to be licensed. Well, he just didn't think that, uh, that that is a good rule. And people can argue until the cows come home about whether Lester Roloff was right about his position, but that's not the, the issue here. The, the issue is Lester was pretty hard-nosed. He was uh, kind of one of these King James, not a King James-only type, but he loved the King James Bible, and that was what he used. And if you heard him talk about the King James from time to time, you would put him in kind of the King James-only crowd, but that's not really what he was. But he was a hard preacher, but people started lumping the term fundamentalist on to him. And, uh, and, and he was really a good man. And uh, people put the term fundamentalist on uh, W.A. Criswell or J. Frank Norris or some of the more uh, ultra-conservative type of people that's another term that we we hear ultra conservative and so uh, my point is with the fundamentalist modernist controversy there was a day and time that the word fundamentalist was not a bad term at all and all it meant was your position on the fundamentals of the Christian faith You believed them. You stood for them. You were a promoter of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that was that Christ was the Son of God. There's a real heaven, a real hell. God uh, uh, gave us the Word of God, the Bible. And it's true. It's inerrant. Uh, We believe it. We live by it. Uh, it got into the, the uh, eschatology. Of course, the fundamentals of the faith didn't necessarily get into a specific view of eschatology. That, that, uh, that's another story all in itself about how the battle of the views got started and how all that's kind of turning out now. But uh, eschatology... Back in the old days was Christ is going to come bodily and visibly and literally, and that was it and it, we we didn't get into all the other stuff well, somebody's right on that <laughs> and uh yeah there's there's all of that of course, and some Yes. He was angry at our church, get up. Ah, yep. I've heard of that. Yep, I've heard of that. Uh, anyway, um, another book that really uh, changed things, and Al will uh, get a kick out of this because uh, he has a son that had a little bit to do with a, a major battle that happened uh, back in the 80s. Uh, the battle for the bible by harold Lindzell. harold Linzell, uh, uh was a professor at fuller seminary in pasadena and later at uh, columbia bible college in uh, columbia south carolina and also northeastern bible seminary in chicago and also editor of christianity today for many many years harold Lindzell is a great bible scholar He wrote lots of books. He wrote this book, though. I don't think any book really caught flame like this one. The Battle for the Bible, put out by Zondervan, came out in 76. And uh, he just got into how we are having a huge, huge battle going on about what to believe about our Bible, and uh, he got into inerrancy, he got into the doctrine of Scripture, he got into infallibility, and then he got into the history, the Lutheran Church, how he brought out the Missouri Synod battle that was finally won by some conservatives in the Missouri Synod, uh, The uh, other regular Lutheran group, which is larger, went liberal with the modernist, fundamentalist controversy of the uh, 19-teens and 20s and 30s. Uh, There was a big battle going on, and most of the churches and most of the denominations lost that battle. And Linzel brings that out, And he goes on to say it's still going on. And uh, the big chapter in this book is his chapter on the Southern Baptist Convention, how they are battling for the Bible. This was actually before the uh, Southern Baptist uh, Convention really got into the battles and the wars And all that happened beginning in the late 70s and going pretty much through, I guess, the mid-90s. A good 25-year fight among the people that were conservatives, believed the Bible, believed in errancy, believed in the trustworthiness of Scripture, and those that did not those that had a weaker view of Scripture and yet were basically being dishonest about it. And there are a lot of code words and uh, the way you kind of phrase things about this battle. I had a seminary professor that uh, told our class that he, I think someone asked him if he believed in inerrancy. And he said, I believe in inerrancy of purpose. And they, they knew what he meant. And so they said, what about inerrancy of content? And he sort of backed off and changed the subject. So lots of seminary professors back in that day were playing those kinds of games. And... Uh, linzell called them out he we'll get into this book a little bit uh uh, in the the weeks ahead he he called them out crawford toy at southern and uh, jack harwell uh, many many others cj allen some of these guys may not mean anything to you these are old-line liberals that were teaching in Southern Baptist seminaries and writing for Southern Baptist magazines for decades and just throwing out their liberalism all over the place. Back in the 70s, I uh, got in the mail a Southern Baptist quarterly on uh, a Bible study. On Exodus and I still have it by the way I was uh, over forty years ago and uh, in a file that I probably couldn't find in a, a year or two if I looked but I, it's there somewhere but anyway this this quarterly talked about the um, uh, the plagues the ten plagues mentioned in uh, in Exodus and the writer of this Sunday school quarterly said that every one of these plagues were not miracles they were natural disasters every one of them the Nile being turned into blood Nile River he said that every so often the Nile uh, kind of floods and the water comes up and hits this red clay. And the red clay, of course, as it goes back, it just has the appearance of red. And that wasn't blood, that was just red clay. The would have known that there there was a in in all of the plagues he uh, explained in a natural way and back in those days there were 20 maybe 25 million southern baptists in america reading that quarterly and of course that's when it finally all uh, hit the fan back in the mid 70s when enough was enough and so that's when the battle started and that's when uh uh, the uh other uh, literature companies that are so well known now like scripture press david c cook and uh, gospel light and uh even lifeway has uh, gotten rid of its old name and has. uh changed uh, writers and philosophy about all of that uh is that sir yeah, is that a good thing i think so they've they've firmed up a lot of stuff they sure have and uh uh i'm not going to stop and jump into some stuff we could uh kind of get off into but uh josh mcdowell uh wrote uh, a book it's in two parts this is just the first part it's called evidence that demand a verdict and super super uh two two volume set and this volume the very first one just happens to be on the bible and the reliability of the bible uh, the uniqueness of the bible why was the bible prepared Uh, confirmation by archaeology and Jesus' part, what he said about Scripture and things like that. He gets into uh, resurrection, prophecy, things like that. Another fantastic uh, book that talks about the importance of uh, the Bible. Let me just give a little overview. I was hoping we would uh, not spend the whole first hour just kind of doing this, but uh, it may go close to that. We're going to talk about general and special revelation. Uh, When we get to the real first lesson, we're going to get into epistemology. What is epistemology and uh, how do we know Things Where does knowledge come from? The Christian view is knowledge comes from revelation. And God gives us that revelation. And it's in two parts. General revelation, special revelation. God gives both kinds of revelation. We'll talk about general revelation for a few minutes sometime. And then the course will major on the second kind of revelation, which is special revelation, which is the Word of God. And so, and then we'll get into views of special revelation, liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, and the historic Christian faith. So, then we're going to get into the definition and importance of biblical inerrancy. Now that's, uh, we could literally spend the summer just talking about that. And we're going to try to limit that to about a lesson and a half. But uh, the importance of biblical inerrancy. In some of that we're going to talk about what inerrancy does not mean. Some people foist certain Meanings on the word inerrancy that we're to bear, and yet we shouldn't have to bear that. And so we're going to talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. We're also going to look at the uh, evidences of inerrancy, uh, continuity of the Bible, the fulfilled prophecy. When you look at all of what the Bible presents as prophecy and how you see all of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, that is one of the evidences of a perfect, no-mistake Bible inerrancy. And then we're going to look at the unique uh, content of uh the Bible, man's depravity. You know, really and truly, man's depravity, as described in the pages of Scripture, is unique. It's not found really anywhere, unless it's borrowed from the Bible and put somewhere else. But people that want to just stand flat-footed and talk about the nature of man you won't find a better picture of the real man than in the Bible. And that, all by itself, is a tremendous uh, realization of uh, the trustworthiness of uh, inerrancy. Uh, The plan of salvation. If you really study carefully... The plan of salvation. Here's man, woman, Garden of Eden. God's told them to do something. There's Satan comes into the picture, tricks them. Uh, Adam, of course, willfully sins. They've, they've blown it. What does God do? What is God going to do to punish? their sin. And if we didn't know anything else, and our knowledge stopped right there, we didn't know what God really did, and we were to take a poll, or we would all sit down with a few pieces of paper and write out what we would do about how to settle this once and for all. Here's man... He's disobeyed God. He's sinned. God is perfect justice. God is also loving. What's He going to do with man? The Bible answer to the plan of salvation is perfect, it's unique, and it could only come from an all-knowing, all-powerful God. And we would never have come up with a plan of salvation like that. Uh, Graphic portrayals of people in the Bible. It's just there in black and white. And uh, if the Bible wasn't really accurate and if the Bible wasn't perfect and if the Bible wasn't inerrant, those betrayals would have been camouflaged a little bit. They would have been uh, airbrushed. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't have been the same. That proves. That's a, one of the great, great, uh, well, it, uh, it just shows what the Bible's about. It's very uh, truthful. Uh, life and death change lives. Bible difficulties there's a lot of things that we're going to look at about inerrancy that uh, people always have. Well, if the Bible couldn't be true, it, it actually promotes slavery, you know stuff like that. you know you hear that all the time, and uh, we're actually going to talk about slavery. And we're going to talk about what the Bible really teaches about some of these difficult parts of the Bible. And then uh, if we get a chance toward the end, we'll get into canonicity, uh, the strength of, of that. And you'd be surprised about people's views of canonicity. Well, it's, uh, it's actually how we got the 66 books it, it's the canon of Scripture, and it, it uh, it's the complete Bible, and the, it was actually put together. There was actually some, some real meetings and some real debates, and, uh, you know, should this be in the Bible? Should this be in the Bible? No, that's not any good. Let's throw that out. You know, the Catholic Bible has some extra books, and our Bible doesn't, so... We might talk about that for a little bit. I don't know if, how many of you knew this, but Martin Luther didn't believe that there were 66 books in this Bible. He believed there were 65. He thought one got in by hook or crook and, and shouldn't have gotten in. James. Book of James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so you know there's uh some crazy uh, arguments going going on all over the place but that's that's kind of what uh what we're going to do what we're up against this thing on inerrancy the uh the bible stands for inspiration Infallibility and inerrancy. Those are really three words that are all first cousins. And uh, we're going to be using those words and we're going to be talking about some things uh, in these areas uh, for this course. The three I's, exactly. And the first one, inspiration, actually deals with the origin of the Bible. Evangelicals have always believed that the Bible is God breathed. We'll get into the uh, passage. Well, I could just you know, get into it right now. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and the inspiration of God literally means God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that's really what inspiration is about. It's dealing with the origin of the Bible, how we got our Bible. And we will get into the various views of even that. There is some that believe in the mechanical dictation theory. And we're, we're not going to spend any time on that tonight, but what that means is that Paul sat down with a quill and scroll and said, Okay, God, I'm ready. And God said, Okay, write this. I, Paul, an apostle. Okay, I, Paul, an apostle. Wait a minute. Well, just hold on. Let me write that. And in other words, it's like a business executive or the president of a company dictating a letter to his secretary. That's what mechanical dictation is. Now, is that the way we got our Bible? And if not, then what does that mean? Does it mean that the Bible... Writers knew what they were doing when they were doing it, and if not, what does all that mean? so we'll we'll chase that around for for a little bit. infallibility and I, by the way, I know of no real scholarly person, any real person of note that believes in mechanical dictation that is a straw man that the liberals throw at conservatives oh you people that believe in inerrancy oh I see y'all are the ones that believe in mechanical dictation see that's the way they play those games I don't know how many of you Know of a uh, old time independent Baptist guy from a generation ago, John R. rice i don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but he actually believed in mechanical dictation, and he was a good man. he was a good, good preacher, and uh, he edited the Sword of the Lord. A uh, Christian magazine. Uh, he it started in Wheaton, and uh, he ended up in Tennessee and preached in revivals and conferences all over the country. He and Bob Jones and Carl McIntyre kind of uh, kind of were looked upon as the uh, fundamentalist Trinity back uh, back in the. 30s, 40s, and 50s. They made a lot of noise. And they had a huge, huge influence. They did. They did. Yes, they did. Rice was a former Southern Baptist. Actually went to Decatur Baptist, which later moved to Dallas and became Dallas Baptist. And uh, so... I think Rice uh, also went to uh, Baylor in Southwestern, and uh, he was uh, he was a good preacher. But uh, there was so there was a big fight. That's not so much anymore. But back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, the non-Southern Baptist, Baptist, the Independent Baptist, thought the Southern Baptists were way too liberal, and. all of that, and so they they had a lot of little wars. Infallibility speaks of authority and enduring nature of the Bible. To be uh, infallible means something is incapable of falling and therefore is permanently binding and cannot be broken. And of course, There's a passage where Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken, John 10. And another place where he says one jot or one tittle will uh, by no means pass away from the law. Uh, That's in uh, Matthew 5. And so these passages speak of the Bible's uh, infallibility. And then you've got inerrancy. And uh, this simply means without error without error inerrancy isn't just uh, about passages that speak of salvation also applies to all historic and scientific statements as well it's not only accurate in matters related to faith and practice but accurate in things that deal with just everything else. This is uh, some of the moderates and liberals of today believe that the Bible is true in the areas of faith, but not necessarily in the areas of history or science. The example I gave of a seminary professor doing that uh, little take that is so uh so typical what is going on uh today. Do one more little thing here and then we'll get into the actual stuff. Back in nineteen forty nine an organization called the Evangelical Theological Society still around about four thousand members. It's really made up of uh professional society of Bible scholars, educators, uh, teachers, and uh, professors, and pastors. And in order to uh, be a member, you have to sign a statement that says this, The Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and therefore inerrant in the autographs. That uh, was a one-sentence statement. They've since, uh, back about, uh, I think in 1990, added a second sentence. Several of the uh, uh, members wanted uh, them to nail down the Trinity, and so they added a second sentence that said, God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is uncreated, an uncreated person, one in essence, equal in power and glory. But the main thing we want to major on is this organization, the first sentence and for many years their only sentence, simply said the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and therefore inerrant in the autographs. I've heard lots of people say that there's not one sentence you can put together about the Bible that's any better. And uh, that would be... That would get my vote as well. How about one phrase, sola scriptura? That's a, that's that's great. Yes, yeah, we're going to get into that, and I don't mind spending a minute uh, on that. But inerrant in the autographs, I think uh, in the little blurb about the Wednesday night class there was a little section about some of the topics we're going to look at, and I think one of them said something about the inerrancy of uh, the translations. And uh, I, I'm surprised no one caught me in the hall and said, you believe in iner- iner- inerrancy of translations? And my answer would be, no, I don't. We, we stuck that in there as just a... Kind of a, get a little curiosity going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, inerrancy applies to the original autographs. Now, here's another trick the liberals use. Produce for me the original autographs. Well, you can't produce them. The original autographs are no more. We have literally thousands of reputable copies of those original autographs. But the original autographs are like the Ark and the Cross and the Crown of Thorns and some of those kinds of relics. They just sort of disappear. Have you ever noticed how these collectibles that uh, we'd like to find somewhere... The three nails. You ever thought about that, man? Let's, yeah, let's let's get those three nails and put them on eBay. Yeah, and so the the things that we would worship, God has a way of making them disappear. And guess what? The autographs have disappeared. So they say. If the autographs are no more, then inerrancy is not important. Is that right? The inerrancy has to do with the character of God. That's really what inerrancy is mainly about. When God gave us revelation, when He gave us special revelation was there anything in that revelation that was wrong that if we just read it for what it says it would lead us astray so anyway we'll we'll get into some of that and uh and yes uh that's where canonicity comes in that's where the the real study of uh uh just all of the the copies and, and and things there are some things here that i I don't think I'm gonna get into but it really gets into a lot of uh things and uh all of all of that about uh just the the copies and what's available and what's out there and and uh on and on and on and on, and I I don't want to get into a lot of lot of heavy stuff. I'm that's over my head. So uh, we'll we'll uh, deal with what we've got. Um, inerrancy is nonetheless a good word. I think we'll find out that uh, the views of inerrancy and what it really means is uh, something that is. Uh, it's a word that we shouldn't be afraid of. Uh, I've just jotting down a few people that uh, I had heard recently uh, talk about. Well, not, not all of these are recently because a couple of them are gone. But uh, I was uh, hearing a program not long ago on Christian Radio where Norm Geisler, who has written a couple of good books on inerrancy and biblical authority, Uh, He believes in the inerrancy that we're going to be promoting and talking about. Charles Ryrie also believes in inerrancy. John Wolvard, he he is gone. He died a few years ago. Uh, Longtime president of uh, Dallas Seminary. R.C. Sproul, pretty famous uh, Presbyterian. uh, And uh, John MacArthur believes in uh, inerrancy. Paige Patterson, uh, Gleason Archer, a famous uh, Fuller and Trinity uh, seminary guy. And then popular preachers. Some of these popular preachers may not ring our bell totally, but uh, I think they're good men. I think most of the time they preach good stuff. Charles Stanley, uh, he believes in inerrancy. Uh, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, Warren Wiersbe, Theodore Epp—Epp uh, Epp died a few years ago as well—but uh, these are these are outstanding people that believe in inerrancy, and so I think we're in good company. <laughs> good point. That's super. Let's. Uh, we've got a few minutes. Let me uh, get into some of this stuff. And uh, when we need to stop, let me know. We, we'll go about five or ten minutes here. Epistemology, that's uh, kind of a uh, term. It's a philosophical term that means to know or to understand. And uh, it really gets into how... Do we know things? How do we know things? How do we determine what is right or what is true? Where does knowledge come from? Uh, Through the centuries, people have asked these questions. Who are we? Uh, Why are we here? Where are we going? Where does all this... End. What is the meaning of life? And those questions have been answered by everybody. Oprah, David Letterman, Al Sharpton, uh, Joel Osteen, Hillary. Uh, they everybody's got an answer. Christians, however, believe that the answers to these questions come through revelation. And God, who created us and put us here, has revealed Himself to us through revelation. And He has revealed Himself to us through general revelation and special revelation. Both are very important. What is general revelation? Sometimes called natural revelation. It's the revelation we find in nature. In other words, the creation around us reminds us that there is a god the creation around us says that someone must have put all this in place that's what the intelligent design movement is all about Uh, god is very powerful and so where where do we get this the book of Romans is exactly where we find it, and chapter one is the chapter, and the uh, verses are eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. Does someone have that in a, what kind of a translation? And I be good. Read read those three verses. Wow, somebody have another translation okay super yeah 18 through 20 romans 1 there's another uh, passage that's uh, pretty good that's in the old testament that says some things a little differently but it talks about natural revelation and that is psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 Uh, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship or handiwork. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they made Him known. Somebody with a different version. Look at... Okay. Okay. Heavens declare the glory of God. The very universe, in other words, should remind us of God. By the way, there's another passage in the New Testament, Acts 14. Acts 14 that uh, also talks about natural revelation. Acts 14 17 now this is actually a story of paul and barnabas on their first missionary journey people actually had no knowledge of uh, of god and he approaches them through natural revelation and so somebody read acts fourteen seventeen. Yes, he did not leave okay Paul has uh, kind of adapted a message to his audience here. These are Jews, they're ranked pagans, and he uses general revelation to get uh, their attention. The Romans one eighteen through 18-20 passage, Paul here is saying that those who have had no contact with special revelation, nonetheless have had contact with natural revelation. Did you catch that when the uh, those verses were being read? It said the creation shows that there's a God. And that is very powerful. And just that information, just looking around and seeing that there's evidence of a God, makes us without excuse. It is easy to see what God has done without even understanding or knowing the love of God through Jesus. We can see just the cosmic scale, uh, the human body, the eye. Yeah, baby, a birth of a baby. Uh, the heart, uh, Neptune, uh, 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 protons, space, the brain, the atom. I've seen pictures of uh, the microscopic, up close uh, view of an ant, or a mosquito, or one of those kinds of, of insects. It's just amazing how they're how they're put together. Um, but to say this is uh, just sheer blind chance is kind of kind of crazy. David says some things, Paul says some things that says that there's so much evidence around the world and in nature that that alone shows us there is a God and that He's very powerful. Now, does that alone save us? The answer to that is no. No. There are limits to natural revelation. It's a great thing that God has shown us general or natural revelation, but it doesn't tell all of the story. And doesn't tell the story of salvation. That's where special revelation comes in. Natural revelation, general revelation, tells us two things: there's a God; He's very powerful. But they do work together. And uh, next week we're going to pick up on some people in the Bible that responded to God through general or natural revelation, and we'll see what happened. Give you a little uh, word about. That the one will be the Ethiopian eunuch. Over in Acts, he's in his chariot going through the desert. You remember what he's doing? He's reading the Bible. And we'll pick it up there next time and we'll see what happens. He actually responded positively to the natural revelation that God gave him. And he now has a desire for more. And guess what happened? God put someone right by him to tell him some stuff, and he was saved. So, yes, sir. Who? I'm sorry, ma'am. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. I read some time. I'm not for sure how far back it goes. Maybe 10 years ago. Maybe something like that. But I understand that the late great Planet Earth. Is the best selling book of all time besides the Bible. But a a, a real human being writing a real book and getting it published, Late Great Planet Earth, and I think it is up close to 100 million copies. And I wouldn't doubt that I also read something that uh, the, um, what was the one, the guy out in California, Purpose Driven Life? uh, Rick, Warren, Rick Warren. Rick Warren. I understand that's getting up in that area as well. So, but uh, I've I've actually known a few people that were not Christians. They got a hold of Late Great Planet Earth out of curiosity, read the book, and became a Christian as a result of that. I know several that did that. So it it had a real impact, even if. You didn't get into, you know, he was a real hard pre-trib rapture guy that I think came out in that book. Kind of like the, uh, what's the one that uh, Tim LaHaye did, his series Left Behind, with yeah. Left Behind series. That's a big uh, pre-trib rapture position as well. But uh, even if you don't agree with the specifics of the uh Theological position on on that. And there's still some some good stuff in those books, without a doubt. So we'll uh, we'll do this again next uh, next week. So thank y'all.